Hey everybody, uh, Ben from Lawyer's Guide. Kirk and I recorded an episode on Monday, March 1st, uh, 2021, about net neutrality. And uh, although it was a very fun episode and we spent probably far too long talking about it, unfortunately we had some uh, some technical challenges and not all of the content that we discussed uh, made its way onto my hard drive. So uh, I had to do some creative editing to cut around some areas where Kirk cut out or I cut out. So you may notice some, some odd cuts and hiccups. Uh, apologize for that. Please just uh, indulge us if you would during this ongoing pandemic as we wrestle with the reality of having to record uh, remotely in different locations. So uh, hopefully you enjoy it and uh, look forward to continuing to bring you more content for the rest of the year. Thanks. Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN. And you can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. We also have a website, LGGPodcast.com, that will direct you to the various platforms where you can find, subscribe, and download uh, prior episodes. Uh, so we are back. We are season uh, what, season four, episode three, I think we're on now. That sounds about right. And we are going know, to lost track. <laughs> <laughs> at long last take a, a, uh, a crack at a topic that we've been threatening to discuss since the outset of the podcast. Basically, <laughs> actually, I think we launched in 2017. And one of the first things that happened is that they uh, repealed the net neutrality regulations, which um, very much angered a lot of people. So we're going <laughs> to yeah, so have a discussion about that. Um, this is going to be an unusual episode for us because net neutrality is an issue that I think, Kirk, I don't want to speak for you, so jump in, but I think both you and I generally favor the ideas behind net neutrality, but you and I are both always the devil is in the details kind of guys, <laughs> and the details here are um, voluminous. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's going to get to what we're going to talk about this. I'm going to tell you just sort of to start off with, this is not my area of expertise. Ben is much more knowledgeable about this than I am, having studied these, these regulations and stuff much more than I have. I come at it from having actually worked quite a bit with cell phones um, and cell phone technology and, and stuff related to more telecommunications, uh, which obviously underlies some stuff related to the internet. But it's one of those where I think both of us kind of look at it and say, yes, we do favor generally net neutrality, but that leads us to the first point, which is what do we favor? Because what is what is it neutrality yeah. yeah it's a it's a deep uh dense topic um there's a lot of history behind it and a lot of it revolves around the idea of something called a common carrier which we're going to discuss uh, later on in the podcast but we'll probably at some point do a more detailed episode on that but for now we're going to try and stick with um really the last you know we'll, I'll, i'm going to cover maybe the last century of history here or in, in like 60 seconds uh we're going to really stick to what has gone on over the last uh maybe 20 years 30 years basically our adult lifetimes and and, and how, how the internet is regulated in the United States, uh, how it's not regulated, uh, which is probably a more accurate way to describe it. But to start with, when we talk about net neutrality, you, you have to start by figuring out what exactly it is you mean, because there's net neutrality, and then there's net neutrality, and then there's also net neutrality, you know? <laughs> yeah. And there's also, neutra- there's also neutrality on the net. I, uh, to prepare for this, I started with the, the Wikipedia definition. I'm just going to read it to you. So here we go. Uh, network neutrality, most commonly called net neutrality, is the principle that internet service providers, ISPs must treat all internet communications equally and not discriminate or charge differently based on user, content, website, platform, 
application, type of equipment, source address, destination address, or method of communication. End quote. The key, key words I want to point out there is must. Must treat all communication equally. Another, now, another I, key word there is ISP. Yes, for ISPs. This is a broad definition, and I'm going to say something that if you're a net neutrality fan, you're going to argue with me uh, when I'm done. So be prepared to get triggered. I've yet to meet a single person who believes in this, not one. And I know what you're thinking, listener. You're thinking, well, I'm one. Uh, I'm going to email you, Ben, and I'm going to tell you uh, how wrong you are. So you're telling me that you know I'm, I'm a surgeon doing a live telemedicine procedure in consultation with uh, the world's foremost expert on that procedure. He's in Singapore. Uh, I'm in New York. But my traffic for my teleconference cannot be given a higher priority over somebody playing Fortnite or watching The Office. Okay? The, the real key here word, and I think that what's, what Ben's picking on is the word must. Must. Yeah. And let's let's talk about this just briefly. And it's one of the things I want to sort of get into because, you know, for those of you who know, we're both patent attorneys. I work in conjunction with patents. And when I train younger associates, one of the key things I tell them is ban the word must from your vocabulary mm-hmm. because must means 100% of the time. It does not mean 99.9. It means 100% of the time. That means if you're looking at what this statement says that you must treat all things equally, it means there can be nothing with priority ever. Yeah. Which, which is obviously not what, what anybody really wants. I would rewrite this maybe to start with as saying should, you know, ISP should not discriminate. <laughs> and then add to that without a good reason. And <laughs> what is a good reason is a function of sort of our collective social attitudes about how the internet should work. And that probably hues closer to what net neutrality advocates really want. And I should say up front, you know, Kirk and I both generally favor these principles. Neither one of us, I don't think, has a real big dog in this hunt. I didn't feel especially strongly about adding the net neutrality regulations when we did. I didn't feel especially strongly about removing them uh, when they were taken away. And so then I went out trying to find articles that would kind of lay out the legal background in a neutral way. And what I discovered was when it comes to net neutrality, I I could not find anywhere a a single article that got into any kind of, not even detail, but just a basic uh, overview of what the operating legal principles are that was not written by somebody with an obvious, unhidden axe to grind, generally in favor of net neutrality. The closest I found was uh, um, a woman who wrote for, I think, Engadget. And I'll see if I can find that article and link it in my notes. Even she had an axe to grind, but she at least laid out the law, I thought, pretty well. That's what got me into digging into this and, and me wanting to lay out a description of what this is. One of the things I think to get into with this, and I think it's worth pointing out, you know, sort of at this point in time, is we are dealing a little bit in conjunction with net neutrality with what is arguably a politically charged topic. You know, there are people who are politically on both sides. It definitely is now. It, it, you know, it arguably used to be, I don't think nearly as much as it is now, but I think you have stuff now. One of the things you tend to bump into, and this is just a general thing as a lawyer you encounter, when you start talking about any kind of law which has any kind of political charge to it, one of the things you, you bump in very quickly is that a lot of discussion of it doesn't actually relate to the underlying law. When you talk to people who are, you know, you can say, hey, what does this case actually say? Mm-hmm. And you'd say a case which, you know, can be the basis of anything which is sort of politically charged law. Very few people actually know what it says. And part of the reason is, is because a lot of cases are not decisions necessarily on the merits. They're not necessarily sort of statements as to what it is. So an example would be, as a lot of people would look at it and say, oh, this law said, you know, this case said 
X is legal or illegal or whatever you want to look at? And the answer was no. They did the opposite. They failed to make something that was legal yeah. illegal. It didn't it say it was legal. Right. Everybody yeah. likes to cite the two live crew case for the proposition that the Supreme Court has said that um, uh, satire is um, is fair use. That's not what they said. They no. said it isn't not fair use fair as use. a matter of law. That means there are facts where it could be fair use. There are also facts where it might not. The reason I bring this up is because in, in law, it's very important to recognize that a double negative is different from an affirmative. Those things have two different meanings. And the example, the one that I always use in conjunction with it is not guilty does not mean innocent. Correct. Uh, it's it what is. Failure of the prosecution to carry its burden of proof. It means you had to find out whether or not the person, you tried to find out if the person was guilty. And the answer was you failed to prove they were guilty. Therefore, they are not guilty. It doesn't show that they are innocent. Innocent means they actually didn't do it. Yeah. It simply means that they were not proven to be guilty. And the reason I raise this, in, and the reason I'm sort of bringing this up in a general sort of calculation of it, is that's a little bit what we want to get into in conjunction with this episode, is sort of point out the things that here's the background of what this is coming from. This is an extremely complicated issue because we're talking about laws that have to do with the regulation of essentially communication of common carriers, of you know public goods, sort of things like that. These There's a lot of law here. Laws, laws here. Um, when we look at this, it's not something that we necessarily can look at and say, this is one law. There's a lot of pieces behind this. There's a lot of things behind this. And a lot of history too that yes. goes along with it. We're going to summarize a little bit of that, but it's, it's, you can't fully understand it without knowing at least a little bit about how we got it. What people are really worried about is that the internet's going to become like how your cable subscription works, where, oh, I have to pay an extra $45 a month for the social media package, or they'll cut off my access to Facebook or and Twitter. I look at it as what I call the unramp compact. You know, we, we, when we go out and buy an internet ISP, internet services, we are looking at our ISP as the last mile solution. They've got a wire that runs to my house. I connect my computers to it. And over that wire, I send and receive electrons that turn into data. And th that's all I want. And we, we don't want the ISP interfering with our regular use and our discretion on how we use that, provided we're not doing anything wrong. And I don't think most people would disagree that there are certain higher priority types of uses or users that should receive priority. That's probably less of an issue now because there are separate private networks that high priority users can use. But just in principle, I don't think most people would disagree that there are at least some classifications that are more important than uh, your World of Warcraft game. So... <laughs> Uh, with that background, when we when we talk about net neutrality, I think we're mostly talking about the unramp compact. Uh, once I pay you for my access, I get to decide within the bounds of the law and reason what I'm going to go do, and the internet uh, service provider is not going to interfere. Crafting a set of public public regulations that achieve this though is uh, is is tricky. I don't think any country in the world really has a good set of them yet. There's been a lot of attempts at dealing with this. A lot of countries have different metering and billing practices than what we have, so their their rules address different concerns. But you know, getting your arms around this, there's just a lot of of, of misinformation about what the you know what not only what net neutrality is, but what the laws really are. I think a good way to think about this, and I think it's worth noting one of the things you commented about, is the fear of for net non-neutrality, so to speak, mm -hmm. comes out of cable TV, and particularly the way cable TV is provided. And you know, when you talk about, and I think it's a good, valuable thing right now. People talk a lot about now about you know cutting the cable, going to you know streaming services, stuff like that. Cable TV for a long period of time, and pretty much still now, where if you want cable TV, you have to buy a package. You cannot just get access to cable TV and watch what you want. Mm -hmm. You get specific stations. Those stations are packaged uh, and that's decided by your cable provider what comes in each individual package. In a 
negotiate with the various content providers over what's going to be included and at what price. Yep. And they can cut you off. I mean, we've all encountered it where it's the, hey, you suddenly can't watch the you know local sports game because that station is cut out of your cable because of a dispute with that station. This is what people are worried about in some sense mm-hmm. that are worried about net non-neutrality. We, we do need to kind of step back and give you um, just 60 seconds on where this all came from. Uh, and I've, I've teased this a little bit in some prior episodes where I mentioned that uh, the, ti- the sinking of the Titanic tells you what you don't know about net neutrality. So I'm going to finally explain what I mean by that. We had to deal with this concept of the common carrier. And you know the nation did not initially regulate a lot of this type of infrastructure all that closely until the Titanic disaster. There were, there were some um, very um, uh, tepid baby steps into regulation, but you know, in part of the investigation of the Titanic disaster, you know, they had wireless radio on the Titanic. When it got close enough to shore, they could contact uh, shore stations and they could get updates. They could also get wireless updates from other vessels. And over the course of the evening before the uh, vessel sank, you know, the radio was operated by uh, the radio company, not by the ship, uh, the Marconi radio company. They were receiving um, two types of messages. Well, probably more than that, but two that we care about. One is messages sent by people on shore to passengers on the ship. Uh, commercial communications. These are the things Marconi was making money off of doing, and that's why they were there. Uh, the other kind of communications they got were things like weather updates, ice sightings from nearby vessels, things that are boring and not interesting when you're trying to make money off of your radio. <laughs> so if you're sitting there in, in uh, the early 1900s and wondering, gee, which message is going to get priority? It's the one I'm being paid to deliver quickly not the boring update about how cold it is in the North Atlantic. Yeah, we know we're there. We can tell. So that was one of the the, the sort of indictments of, of how things went wrong is that ships were sending out wireless warnings of all kinds of icebergs that they've sighted. Uh, and I, I think it's even believed that the iceberg that hit the Titanic was sighted by another vessel in its path. Those messages did not get to the bridge promptly because uh, Marconi was discriminating in favor of stuff that made, uh, it made money off of. And the reason I say this tells us a lot about net neutrality is you might be thinking, yeah, perfect. So we need net neutrality. No, <laughs> no. It, that was it, net neutrality. No, that was the wrong neutrality. The ICE messages should have been prioritized, right? We should have had a public policy that things that pertain to public safety and the welfare of the passengers get priority first, you know, over everything else. So it's still not net neutrality. It's just going the other way, the way that makes more sense. So, you know, we, we then had the Radio Act of 1912, which uh, regulated radio and seafaring vessels, that morphed into uh, the Radio Act of 1927, which strengthened federal licensing and control over terrestrial radio. Uh, but the current regime was enacted in 1934, uh, part some of the New Deal legislation. Uh, the Communications Act was passed, which brought the control of uh, wired transmissions, uh, you know, telephone, telegram. Uh, that was under the Interstate uh, Commerce Commission. I think it got moved from there to uh, the new agency, the Federal Communication Commission, along with uh, wireless. So radio and wired, you know, phone and radio both got moved to this new FCC. One thing to keep in mind, there's also a lot of other things going on at this point in time, which relate to these types of things. So perfect examples of what it is, extremely powerful radio stations Yes, uh, existed at this point in time. Ones that could broadcast pretty much through the entire United States. Yeah. We're having frequency um, conflicts and things like that too. So there, there's, it's not, we're talking about sort of these kind of things that we're not getting into this regulation just because of sort of the Titanic and, and ship to shore communications. We have wireless exploding. We have wired communication exploding. And because of that, we're getting a lot of potentially problematic things happening around it. So over the years, the FCC's uh, jurisdiction has expanded. They cover radio, television, cable, transmissions, wire, satellite, uh, you know, et cetera. 
But one of the things that's not on that list uh, is internet because internet is weird. You can get internet over radio. You can get internet over satellite. You can get internet over cable. So we have an agency that's regulating the, the transmission medium itself, but it's less clear whether they can regulate the things that are transmitted on them. So if you think of like a traditional modem, you know, your, your computer literally dials a phone number. It picks up the quote unquote phone and it makes a call to another computer that answers the quote unquote phone. And the phone company has no idea what you're doing. They don't know whether, uh, you know, just a bunch of analog data on a line. They, they have no clue. So that's not really their concern, whether it's voice, whether it's analog or whatever. But, you know, wh why does this all matter? Well, the reason is because the, the Communications Act that governs all this stuff has a number of different titles which is just a fancy way of saying how we've organized things that the, that the agency can do. But the, the, probably the broadest grant of regula regulatory authority is in Title II, which applies to something called a common carrier. Uh, Kirk, have you heard of a common carrier? <laughs> I have heard of a common carrier. Uh, yeah. So this is uh, a, a very old legal term that uh, I, I want to say originates from like, like Renaissance you know, merchant fairs and trade fairs. But Basically, it's any time that you have, not any time, but it's when you have somebody who's using public infrastructure to transport people or goods, which sounds like a broad category, and it is. Keep in mind, this covers things like horse carts. Yes, that's, what, that's what, all where it came from uh, was, was that era. So uh, passenger trains, airlines, cruise ships, ferries, taxis, anything like that that's moving people around. The law has, has for a long time, well before the United States, imposed heightened standards of uh, behavior and safety and heightened duties upon common carriers. It isn't just people. It's also goods. Yeah, and that's good. the other thing to keep in mind in conjunction with this. When you provide, you know, a package to be, you know, or you buy something off of, you know, your favorite website and it's shipped to you via a shipping service, those mm -hmm. are common carriers. They are carrying stuff, which is yours. Yeah. Um, and they're carrying stuff which belongs to many people. So that's, that's part of the start of this is we're looking at it and we're saying this radio infrastructure, this wired, this wireless infrastructure is carrying stuff, which is yours, which is information for lack of a better term, yep. uh, communication. And when we're talking about common carriers in this, and I think it's an important piece to, that you got over just a little bit there. Let's go back to the dawn of the internet. The internet infrastructure and what was used was existing telecommunication infrastructure, mm -hmm. at least to start off with. So when you talk about what is, you know, going across a telecommunication line, an internet communication, you know, somebody downloading a picture over their modem was using the same line as somebody talking on the phone. So when we look at the idea of say, and now we're looking at, you know, what are these neutral communications? We can look at it and say, well, what's being transferred? transmitted is, is bits of information. The answer is this is all data, either analog or digital, depending on exactly where we want to look at it. It's all traveling along these various lines. Some of it is voice. Some of it is data coming from a computer. But these things, as far as you know, a trunk line operator and a trunk is the, the large lines that interconnect major cities like inside the United States and around the world. The trunk line operator doesn't really know what the data is. They don't know if it's a phone call to you or your mom. They don't know if it's a 911 emergency call. They don't know if it's, you know, your computer downloading something or what it's And doesn't really care. Their job is to maintain the infrastructure. Is the wire connected from A to B and is the transmission getting through? And if it is, then, then that's their job. They're dealing with the transmission aspects. Yeah. And that's, and that's what we're sort of dealing. That's what we're starting within this is when we're looking at the idea of saying the internet, the internet didn't create its new infrastructure. Now we're talking about like the creation of Marconi and the radio. We're talking about a lot of sort of the AT&T setups. We do have a creation of an infrastructure yep. as well as part of this, which doesn't exist in conjunction with the internet. And that gets into the difference between a common carrier and a private carrier. A common carrier holds itself out to the general public for business. Uh, and it, it can't usually discriminate about who it takes on, who it does business with. 
uh, because it's operating for the public necessity. So, you know, broadly speaking, the government has, uh, you know, more authority, both moral and legal, to impose restrictions on common carriers and regulate them because they're conducting commerce using natural monopolies that are owned by we the people. They're our roads. They're our rivers, you know, they're our skies, it's our air. And to the extent that we let them put wires in the ground, you know, it's in easements next to the, <laughs> our roads and everything else. So, you know, the common carriers are thus highly regulated and have been for a long time and, and have always heightened duties, even under common law torts and things like that. That's to be distinguished from private carriers who contract privately only for specific clients of their choosing. They can refuse to take on specific people or specific goods for basically any reason. Good example of that is uh, a private airplane. So now we get into the question, is Amazon Prime Delivery a common carrier or is it a private carrier? The US mail service is a common carrier, but it's also the yeah. US government. Um, so you have sort of some uniqueness in that. So these are the kind of things where you get into these kind of questions. This is what we said. Amazon only delivers company. Amazon packages, you know, whereas, whereas FedEx can deliver Amazon packages or Walmart packages or anything else. Think of it like a taxi, like the taxi just pulls up and accepts whoever wants a taxi, you know, and, and they, they don't really have, they have some discretion, but not much to refuse to take you someplace. Under the Communications Act, you know, these, these common carrier services, you know, they also can't pick and choose customers and they also can't discriminate. And, and all the rules that regulate this are in uh, Title II of the Communications Act, which is why Title II is so important. It gives the FCC the most uh, authority and discretion. So a long time ago, the question arose of, well, what do you do with things that are more than mere transmissions, but which use these, um, uh, you know, these, these channels of, of commerce or communication? And we're talking back, in, it's like the 60s. This is like the AT&T monopoly days, which I'm sure most people listening to this podcast probably don't remember. I don't <laughs> well, we don't remember, quite frankly. No, we know more about them. Like we, we grew up in a time not, not that far removed from them. Um, but uh, you know, there was a time when you had to buy your phone from the phone company you know, to hook it up to the, to the network. And, uh, but, you know, third parties had begun to sell equipment that you could plug into the AT&T phone network. And you could do other things. You could uh, do computer processing and things of that nature. So this, you know, the FCC had to figure out, well, do we have any authority to, to get involved in that and set rules about who has to be allowed to plug in which devices on these endpoints? The F FCC at the time drew a line between what they called basic services and enhanced services. And enhanced services is what we now think of as the internet. Basic services, they said, is pure transmission. It's the stuff that they've always been doing. You just pure transmission, point to point, regulating radio, regulating wire, regulating uh, whatever. Congress delegated authority to the FCC to regulate in that area. That was where they had a clear permission or grant of authority to do that. So for basic transmission services, yes, the FCC can regulate. But for enhanced services, they said no. And they said an enhanced service is anything beyond mere transmission over one of these channels. Uh, they said, we're not going to regulate there, which, which left, practically speaking, that aspect of communication unregulated at the federal level, except maybe by uh, the Federal Trade Commission, which is our federal consumer protection branch. So uh, this happened in the 1960s. Uh, it was revisited in the early 80s. The FCC reaffirmed, we're not going to touch information services. When they broke up AT&T into the baby bells, uh, they did it then as well. They said all the local operating companies are going to be CLEX. Uh, local exchange carriers, but uh, uh, you know, ne'er into information services shall you step. This dichotomy was uh, was entrenched early on, and then not much changed uh, until the mid '90s when uh, the internet became a thing, and we finally had a new telecommunications law for the first time in uh, 60 years. At that point, it had been a while. The Telecommunications Act of 1996. Congress at the time kind of took the attitude of. This internet thing is new. We don't really get it, but it seems to be working really well. And uh, the economy is growing. We like that. People are excited about it. We like that. 
And it's all happened without us getting involved. So uh, why don't we keep not getting involved? And I think it's important to point out, you know, in 1996, think about where the internet was. For those of you who just go back and like one of the machines on, on the internet and look at where the internet was. We have no, no, no Google. We have no Netflix. Mm-hmm. We have none of the major things you think of as using the internet in 1996. Uh, in 1996, the web was really pretty new. You know, this is something where, you know, the internet at that point in time was a lot of text. We're not talking about the internet we have today. The internet we have today is very different than the internet was in 1996. And for anybody who's, you know, listening to this that isn't familiar with that, you know, that grew up with universal broadband and stuff like that. Telecommunications Act of 96 was basically the state of play until, you know, the, the late 2000s, early 2010s. And it was not until then that the FCC actually promulgated anything that could be called like a net neutrality regulation or requirement. They had published a lot of what I would call expectations or suggestions for how they wanted things to work. But internet services were still not classified as common carrier services under uh, Title II. Uh, and so they were not subject to those greater regulations. At the time, we've, you, you start to see some instances of the sort of things that net neutrality advocates were afraid of starting to happen. Things like ISPs slowing down traffic for certain types of services like BitTorrent. You know, from the regulatory perspective, it's not really unlawful to do that. Uh, you could argue maybe that there's a, a consumer, um, consumer fraud, consumer misrepresentation going on there that uh, you're not being told that when you buy the service, certain websites are going to be slower than others uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with the website. It's about the separate commercial arrangements of your ISP. I think that violates the unramp compact. And I think, Kirk, both you and I would say that's the kind of thing we don't want our ISPs to yeah, be doing. I think that's correct. And you definitely don't want the sort of internal collusion with the idea that we're going to rank one private care, you know, one private content provider over another private content provider. The other thing I think we also saw at this time, not only was, you know, the potential concerns about that, but we have for the first time, extremely large content starting to go across the internet relative to the infrastructure that was created. I mean, there were days back when the limitation on what you could download was your modem speed. Downloading a single large image took hours. Mm -hmm. Um, what we now have going in at the time of this is happening for the first time, we have things like streaming video, um, which compared to, you know, again, what the internet had been not 10 years earlier um, was enormous amounts of data, you know, comparatively. And the part of the real concern I think with it was this is bogging down the internet because while these carriers may not have necessarily any, um, they may not necessarily be any preference form or whatever it is. They, by definition, sort of have to have preference because they grab a line and then they start transmitting these huge mm-hmm. amounts of data across it. And I think that's also part of what goes in there. So you have that idea that you're looking at, for the first time, we have very large amounts of data being transmitted. We have the possibility of, of carriers and, and ISPs looking at it and saying, we're going to make a decision as to which of these large things we're going to prefer. And we're going to make that decision based on who pays us the most amount of money. Yeah, and, and we should say to this point, um, the the general investment in the internet infrastructure had basically kept pace with the changes in technology and, and the user demands. We saw consistent increases in bandwidth. I remember the first time I had a megabit internet. Oh my gosh, that was such a big deal. Megabit. I mean, yeah. how could you ever need more than that? Now I've got, I just got gigabits the other day. So, um, <laughs> You know, the, the infrastructure largely kept up, not uniformly across the country, but for the most part, the investment was there. Uh, it's not cheap. It's a lot of work to do. 
Um, you know, there's a the last mile problem is always there. How you get to the you know how you get the wires to to the individual houses because then you got to go back and rewire everything unless you can just you know introduce like a new standard or something like in Doxis three or Doxis four something like that. That that's an um, important thing I think to keep in mind here too is there's two ways to speed up the internet. One of which is to literally go out and dig up the lines and put bigger ones in. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly expensive. And that's, you have to keep in mind that the sheer cost of doing that is enormous. A lot of the speed benefits which are gained is data compression and essentially software solutions where a line can simply carry more data. Um, when, in one of the things, if you would all get into sort of speed and internet speed, I, I can tell you my fascination with the network was always what they call the physical layer, the literal wires and how the wires do what they do. And it's one of those things where when you get into those types of things, there becomes an upper limit on what a wire can carry. We are very, very good at cramming data onto the da- onto those lines compared to what we used to be able to do. But there is upper limits. There starts to reach the points where literally quantum physics starts to say you have problems. And that's an important thing to keep in mind is you've got these sort of double, these double boosts, but a lot of it early on was not necessarily physical infrastructure going in the ground. It was figuring out ways to make them the, the, the lines exist faster. This is also part of the backdrop of the net neutrality debate and the part that I know the least about. I know that in the, in the discussion leading up to the 2015 open internet order, which we'll cover in a second, and the repeal, there's a lot of discussion about how the net neutrality rules will impact the incentives for telecommunications companies to continue to invest in the infrastructure and expand our capability. In 2015, you know, the FCC for the first time you know, effectively reclassified internet as a common carrier service subject to regulation under Title II. That finally gives them this broader authority to impose regulations and to deal with things like discrimination, access, things of that nature, the same kind of rights and authorities that they had to um, uh, regulate transmission, make sure everybody has uh, the same kind of access. So that happened in April of 2015. And I believe they did promulgate regulations because I have read them at some point. It was about three years ago. The regulations were lukewarm, uh, as I recall them, effectively being what Kirk and I just discussed. They looked nothing like the Wikipedia definition of net neutrality, where you must not discriminate. We're talking common carriers. Remember, the the Mississippi River, in some sense, is like the underlying trunk line, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that they're both, we're talking about common carriers. So it is one of those things to sort of keep in mind. What we're dealing with here is a real difficulty of figuring this out. The other thing to keep in mind in 2015 is we now really kind of have the start of the internet that we're used to. Now, that internet's created by a bunch of startups in the sort of early, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. So we have the tech bubble in 99, you know, we sort of had those kind of things sort of carry into... Uh, the beginning, but a lot of what we now think about these major behemoths on the internet, social media, you know, Facebook at the point in time, you know, Yahoo, you know, Google, these large sort of behemoths coming in who's mm-hmm. in some sense exist because there wasn't regulation. They were able to look at it and come in and say, hey, we can transmit this. Netflix moves from I'm supplying DVDs to customers you know, via these, these kiosks and gas stations to I'm supplying content streaming over the internet. The, the rules they, they proposed were, I mean, I, I liked them. Um, I didn't think that they changed a ton though. So here's the first one. Uh, if, you're, if you're a broadband internet service provider, uh, you cannot block lawful content, applications, services, or non-harmful devices subject to reasonable network management. And all of these rules are subject to reasonable network management. 
which means you may, and there's a whole separate provision that covers the conditions, but basically based on how much bandwidth you had and what your resources are, you can cut people off if you want to in the, in the purpose of network management. If you got one person who's hogging all your resources and killing off all your other customers because you don't have that much trunk space to go through, you can shut them off. It's fine. So, how, many of us are, how many of us are familiar with throttling, the phrase throttling? You're entitled to stop people from screwing up the use of the infrastructure. They can't completely hog the road. In effect, they're saying you can't send a barge down the Mississippi River, which takes up the entire river. That's, we're fine with that. And you kind of look at it and say, yeah, that's appropriate. That's something that they should be doing. Shall not block lawful content. I think we'd all agree with that. Can't block lawful application services or not harmful devices. It all sounds very reasonable on its face. Here's the thing though. What's a harmful device? Yeah. But what does it mean to say that the device on my network is harmful in some way? Presumably the FCC will decide or they would have decided had this uh, stayed the law. What, what, is a, what is lawful content? What is a non-harmful device? Uh, you know, th- things of that nature. And then subject to reasonable network management. You know, that's, that's kind of a squishy standard. Uh, the next rule says that you cannot impair or degrade lawful traffic on the basis of the content application or service subject to reasonable network management. Yeah. There's your throttling rule, right? Like, yeah, I can, I can throttle you all I want in the defense of network management. Yep. But I can't throttle, for example, you downloading a movie versus you playing a multi, uh, an MMO game because right. that's based on the content, not based upon reasonable network management if they both take the same amount of space. And I think that's what they're trying to say here is, hey, you can't make it content-based. You can't say certain types of content have priority over other types of content, but you can look at it and say, your content is just simply too big. Mm-hmm. I think the problem you get into with that as we look at is we say, if we're looking at saying what's, what's too big is reasonable network management, well, one could be downloading a Netflix movie. The other could be performing video surgery. Those are both gigantic files. Mm-hmm. Now you look at it and say, hey, we've got both these things carrying across. Is it reasonable network management or is that content? And we, and we kind of start looking at it and saying, well, wait, we do kind of want to regulate content, don't we? And the last one I've got here, a person engaged in the provision of broadband internet access service shall not engage in paid prioritization. And paid prioritization is the management of your network to favor some traffic over other through the use of uh, various technological techniques. But here's the thing. It's only paid prioritization if it is either in exchange for money from a third party or to benefit one of your affiliates, which means they can still prioritize whatever traffic they want over other traffic. They just can't take money for it. And this is where we, I think we kind of get in, quite frankly, this is the piece that's trying to get at that original problem of yeah. the cable bundling package. The cable bundling package is entirely monetary. I think there's no question that, that stations are included based upon you know payments and discussions like that. That's what this is saying. This is looking at it and saying, hey, you can't say this company can pay you to, t- to, to hog the, the trunk line, to hog the space as to what it is. Um, Versus somebody who won't pay you with it. Now you can still let them do it. You're just not allowed to take money in exchange uh, for doing it. And and the real thing here is that, again when we and that's the reason I, I harped on that just a little bit. Coming out of cable TV and the concerns with that, I think that's the piece of the regulation we see playing with this. We see this idea of saying, hey, you can't do those kind of backroom deals. You know, we need to have you know sort of whatever it is. And really, those deals can't be for money. Now, they can be arguably for something else. You know, well, the, it does it, say consideration, so they were they were careful with how they wrote it. So yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, and it's you know. So, but again, when you look at it and say what is consideration, you know, in conjunction with it, one can look at it and say I'm going to prioritize based on the reputation of the underlying company. You know, what does that mean? Well, you yeah. know, I'm not gaining any benefit 
reason for that. I'm not getting any consideration, but at the same time, that arguably is discriminatory in how I'm choosing it. I'm choosing more famous companies over less famous companies, but those kind of things are potentially allowed. You know, same as I could say, I'm going to request one that has an increased demand over ones that have a decreased demand, you know, for simply my services. But again, the, the, what they're really trying to prevent here is the deals that say you get pay for play access. Yep. Um, and term, obviously, but <laughs> yep. What is reasonable network management? A network management practice is reasonable if it is primarily used for and tailored to achieve a legitimate network management purpose, taking into account the particular network architecture and technology of the broadband internet access service. So that's that's a lot of ways to say, does it pass the smell test, basically? Yeah. Like, <laughs> does, does it look like you're really managing a network or are you trying to game the system? Yeah. And again, it, there's nothing wrong in some respects. And this is commented a lot of times. A lot of laws are written sometimes with you know amorphous terms in them on purpose oh, yeah. so that judges have discretion in their interpretation. Yeah, you want to have some flexibility right, to, to apply them to specific situations and not be too hemmed in by the language. So I mean, to be clear, overall, I mean, these are all good things. I, I'm fine with all these rules. I don't think they go anywhere near as far as sort of the popular perception of them is. They call these the no blocking, no throttling, uh, no uh, interference rules. Well, it's not really no blocking. It's conditional blocking, conditional, conditional throttling. Blocking. I mean, it's, it's still permitted under certain circumstances. And this is where I think the, the language of technology and law all kind of gets mixed up. It makes it hard to talk about. You get mixed up between, and this is why we started off with, what is? what do you mean by net neutrality? Do you mean the Wikipedia definition must not ever? Because that's not what the laws were. And that's not what the laws are anyway. Like that's, that's yeah. not, that's not workable. So, you know, what you have here, I think, I think is a reasonable framework. I don't, I don't think it, it really changes much. I, it, it does clearly prohibit some practices that I would, I'm happy to see prohibited, but you know, these, these were proposed rules. I forget when exactly they were enacted, but you know, they, the bottom line is the authority to enforce was moved from the FCC back to the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, in 2017 when they reversed this classification and took internet services back out of title. It's simply that the agency that has the authority to enforce has moved. But I think a lot of people, when they saw this, were very concerned about the enforcement. Yeah. And so when it first came out, that was what was supposed to happen. Subsequently, I believe there was an order by a court uh, shortly after that held that the FTC does not have authority to enforce the FCC's regulations. Correct. I think part of the concern with the FTC doing it is that the FCC has historically been one of our more aggressive regulatory bodies. Uh, yeah. People had a lot of confidence in, uh, in them um, really taking the initiative and really enforcing these things rigorously. The FTC is a little more, I would use the word judicious, um, although that's probably a loaded term, uh, but I would say less aggressive, certainly, in, in when they decide to get involved. But, you know, the FTC is the main organization that deals with enforcing privacy regulations now. Uh, and they've been, I think, reasonably aggressive about that. So I think maybe the, the tone and attitude at the FTC is, is changing. So I don't know if the FTC is doing a decent job or if it's just not been enough time yet to really see any negative consequences of repealing these rules. So there's, you know, there's sort of a, an open question there. And I know that there have been legislative attempts to reinstate the rules. And I want to say, so we're, in, you know, if you're listening to this later, we're recording this on March 1st of 2021. Uh, Joe Biden was recently inaugurated as uh, the next president of the United States. So, you know, there's, there, and, and Ajit Pai, who was the chairman who um, uh, oversaw the repeal, has now, I think, rotated off the FCC. So there may be some change coming there. There may be a switch back to these net neutrality rules. It'll be interesting to see if, if there's any practical consequences. So 
Um, if any of you work in an ISP or network industry or another kind of industry where you have seen the consequences either of having the rules from 2015 to 2017 or not having them since, uh, let us know because I think we want to do a follow-up episode to dig into sort of the you know the, the practical side of this more and, and kind of find out you know how has it worked in practice, how has it affected the business. How has it affected uh, the network infrastructure? I can just tell you from a consumer perspective, it's been completely invisible to me. I have not noticed at all. That's one of the things I think we're looking at in conjunction with this. And one of the things we really want to focus on here is this is also going to tie into other areas. We obviously have areas of conjunction of regulation of social media. You know, We're going to have, I think, in, in very few years, the regulation of you have had these kind of things where it's what is something, what is under regulation? Other areas, just to give you an example of what this is, what is PayPal? Has actually it been used to a, be a bank. It started as a bank. Yeah. it's it, So and one of the big questions is, is it a bank or is it a money transfer service? That's one of the things that sort of bumped into because those are regulated differently. Mm-hmm. Money transfer service, by the way, remember I mentioned Western Union and those money orders? That's a money transfer service. Um, you know, for other things. So you bump into these these real questions uh, in conjunction with this this major thing of regulation of a lot of what we see as the internet right now, when we're talking about regulation, has come into being without these regulations really be into place. These regulations were a start to try to put in some kind of regulation on top of what we saw there which may or may not have at the time they went in 2015 until their repeal had that must have an effect on things. And then the question is, since their repeal, has that had a lot of effect on things? Where do we stand today in 2021 versus where we stood in 2014? Has, has the, the implementation, has the repeal had a lot of effect? What should we be doing as regulation? Should these be in place at all? And again, I think when Ben and I looking at it in the position we have, we look at it and say there probably is some need for some regulation here. I, I think I'd summarize it as, I, you know, when, when the net neutrality was really ramping up as a debate, it was before I went to law school and I was, I was in tech at the time and it just struck me me as a solution in search of a problem. I mean, I don't object to it. It sounds like a perfectly good idea, but we haven't had any of these rules so far. Why do we suddenly need them now? And I wasn't objecting to the rules so much as just not understanding the level of passion amongst the people who advocated for them. What am I missing, right? You know, when the rules were passed, I just we went through a couple of them. They all seem reasonable. They're all things that I don't want my ISP to do. I am fine with the FCC or anybody else telling them that they shouldn't do that. But my ISP, you know, to my knowledge, at least wasn't doing that before. If they were doing it, I never noticed. So my consumer experience with net neutrality has not been commensurate with the degree of panic you know I perceive out there about it. That's just one data point. If your experiences are different, let us know because I'd really like to hear more about how this has affected different groups of people, different businesses. Yeah. And I think that's sort of potentially a good way to sort of sum this thing up. And again, we tried to present that this episode is going to be sort of a discussion of history. When you look at it and you say, hey, I'm for neutrality, I'm against net neutrality. What are you talking about? in conjunction with net neutrality. Yeah, start with that. D- define the term. Uh, and then you can, I, th- I think I think it's like a lot of things, honestly. When, once you define what we're actually talking about, you will remove a lot of disagreement right there, right? Because yeah. you know, when, I, when I see people say, I want net neutrality and I look it up, I'm like, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. We can't do that. Well, no, that's not what I really want. What I really want is, and then they describe what's in those regulations. Like, okay, well, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. I think it really helps the conversation to, to start by getting down to the basics of, are we talking about the same thing or not? And one of the reasons I think this has fascinated us, and we've said it in a number of episodes sort of previously, is to point out, and you know, as we've said in sort of the tagline of the show, you know, asking interesting questions that don't necessarily have any answers. I think this is something where we have a very charged topic that a lot of people have opinions on, where there may not necessarily be a clear answer. And a lot of people look at it and say, there is a clear answer. You know, the, the clear answer is this, because this is 
what I see the problem as being. But again, what the answer to it is, when we start looking back at the history of this, we have to realize that there's a lot of intermoving components here. There's a lot of different effects that these things have. And this is also a relatively recent issue. Yeah. These are complicated issues. They have a lot of moving parts. They have a lot of pieces to them. Well, it's rare that we get to get into things like which regulatory agency is in yeah. charge of something. I think another reason we wanted to cover this this topic now is that there probably is going to be a window of opportunity for, for a new net neutrality regime going forward with a new administration, whether they just go back to the 2015 order or do something new, who knows. But I think Kirk and I were talking right before we got on the call. I think this debate, which has been kind of quiet for the last few years, is going to ramp up. Um, in, in the next 12 to 18 months. And I, I think we're going to be revisiting this issue. So, I mean, I think we should all be thinking about that though. Like, what do we want our net neutrality policies to be? Maybe the 2015 order didn't go far enough in your mind. It needs to be more aggressive. What I think we are starting to see now, particularly in conjunction with social media, is the concept of content regulation. Mm-hmm. Should these rules have something to do with what the content of the thing is. Which also, um, I, think, I, I think these rules are probably going to come back and be more important than ever. And I think it's worth taking a fresh look at them. And I think that's, I agree much agree with Ben. I think we are going to see increased interest in this area, but I think we're going to see increased interest in this area, not just from the concept of net neutrality, but actually coming at it from net non-neutrality. And that's the way I'm going I'm to put it with, we should not be treating absolutely everything equal we should have some kind of regulation. Now, the concern with that is who gets to decide what's yeah. unequal and what yeah. is our position? Is with the it? FTC the best body to do that? I mean, yeah. if they're not, I'm not sure who is. But again, those are the kind of questions I think we're going to get into. We may very well revisit this topic in the future. Oh, I'm sure we will. What happens? Yeah. yeah. All right, folks. So I think we're going to put the can on that one. And uh, as we have this debate going forward, you know, stay informed. If I have anything to take away from this, do not take for, for truth the pat summaries you see, even in <laughs> reputable tech media. I mean, and the, the tech media I read was uniformly one-sided uh, in condemning the repeal. And although I'm generally sympathetic to that viewpoint, the reporting on it was not even attempting to be fair or objective or talk about it. So if you're getting news like that, you've, you've really got to kind of dig into it deeper, especially if you're going to be involved in uh, you know, debating how this how this you know regulatory regime changes going forward if if it does. So, all right. Um, next topic. I don't know if we've decided yet. I did get on Facebook um, uh, a reference from a friend of mine in Mexico. Actually, an article on a bunch of video game patents. So, I thought maybe we could go through some of those. Uh, see if any of those are worth talking about, but I haven't looked at the article yet, so I'm not sure what all is in there. Um, there is some, there's some big involvement right now over patent litigation having to do with stuff related to video games. Uh, if you guys are aware of the Blizzard.net um, suits and some of the other suits related to effectively these portals for video games, there's some stuff going on in there too. So yeah, topic, topic, not sure yet, but we'll uh, we'll get it sorted out and we'll get some content out to you. Uh, we are also going to try to get back to our our uh, oft stated but rarely hit target of getting out two episodes a month. If that means we have to do some rewind episodes and play some prior content, we will. Um, I imagine at some point later this spring, we're going to talk about Google the Oracle in detail. That case is probably going to have an opinion coming out in, what would you say, May, June, somewhere in there? <laughs> My I guess is yeah, probably. Okay. It's yeah. probably going to be before the end of the session. I guess it won't be an end of session case. So it might be. So check out our website at lggpodcast.com. and has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes. 
And you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. You can subscribe to this podcast on the platforms. If you give us a review, it will help new listeners find us, or at least that's what everybody who has a podcast says. Never actually investigated that myself, but I assume it's true. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN. And that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lauren, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. I was just trying to find a copy of the repeal order that was issued in 2017. I checked the New York Times, The Verge, Reuters, CNET, CNBC, CNN, The Washington Post, The Guardian, U.S. News, Political, U.S. State Today, Ars Technica, and Wired. And none of their stories covering this had an actual link to the order that was issued. The only site I found that did was NPR, which (laughs) doesn't surprise me. All right, ready? Let's rock. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast.